So good evening, everyone. We are about to venture into a five-part series, and this series is designed to explore better ways to develop an intimate relationship with God. So before we get started, would you join me in prayer, please? Our blessed Heavenly Father, we love you. And Father, we thank you for the blessings that you pour upon us each and every day of our lives. Father, we thank you for your mercy, your compassion, your tenderness, and your kindness. And Father, we pray that we will endeavor each day to allow those same characteristics and traits to be seen in our lives as we interact with not only those in the church that is called our church family, but also those who are called our neighbors that we interact in the world with as well. Father, we do want to know you better. And Father, the only way we can go about the business is knowing you better, Father, is to stay in your word, to study your word, to meditate on your word, praying to you each and every day. And Father, we pray we endeavor to do this. Father, as we venture into this lesson, Father, may we indeed, in the end, know you better. Father, these things we pray and thank you for in Christ Jesus' most holy name. Amen. So this first lesson that we are venturing into tonight, this lesson explores the essential nature of God and how we can relate to him more effectively. The idea for this lesson comes actually from a book by a gentleman by the name of Mike Cope. The book is entitled um, One Holy Hunger. And the idea behind the book is that it provides many insights about knowing God more deeply, about knowing God more personally. So I want to start out with five, about five, four to five rhetorical questions. Rhetorical questions. That is to say, you hear the question, you think about it, and you answer it to yourselves and to God. Uh, We're not asking you to answer it here. I have a couple of questions at the end of the lesson that I will put to the group that's here. But right now, these are rhetorical questions, questions that we can think about and answer to ourselves as we speak to God. And those questions are, when we pray to God, do we really know who we are praying to? Do we really know who we are praying to? Are we even sure that someone is listening Do we find that we're doing all the talking and when we stop, there is only silence? A silence that does not reassure us that someone has actually heard our prayer. Wouldn't it be nice if when we were praying, God will every now and then say, okay, I hear you, keep talking. Wouldn't it be nice? Now, we understand something about prayer. We understand that prayer is powered by faith. And prayer is done with the belief that someone actually hears our prayers. Even if there is silence. Silence after we finish expressing our words of praise, our words of thanksgiving, prayers that we have expressed, our various requests. Even so, Many who claim to be believers have heard, or rather have a hard time rather, imagining the one they are offering their prayers to. 
we know that children don't have a problem when they pray. They don't have a problem at all. Why? Because their faith is simple. Their, their faith is straightforward and it leaves no room for doubt. I would imagine that one of the reasons that Christ Jesus say to us that, that, that our faith should be that of little children because when we think of the faith of little children, we find that little children's faith is not cluttered by uh, the adult hesitations that we have within ourselves. Little children's uh, faith is not cluttered by the doubt, the doubt that God is there to hear and answer our prayers. Children tend to approach God as father and see him as good. So they they are content to speak to him in a simple and straightforward manner. And they are confident in what they're saying. But there's a sadness in all of this. There's a sadness, and the sadness is this. It is sad that as we grow older and as we become more influenced by uh, an unbelieving world, it is sad that our view of God changes and we begin to have false ideas about who God really is. And unfortunately, unfortunately, these false ideas interfere with our prayer life. This lesson... This lesson is an attempt to improve our understanding of who God really is. Why? So that we can better come to the point where we know the one that we are praying to and what he desires from us. So hence the title of this lesson is Getting to Know You, God. Getting to Know You, God. Now, in the process... If we succeed, it will accomplish several things. Number one, our experience of joy and peace will increase because the Bible teaches us that knowing God, knowing God is the essence of eternal life. And and when we speak of eternal life and God speaks of eternal life, he says to us, for instance, at John 17 at verse 3, he says this, this is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God, and Jesus whom you have sent. Our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus teaches us that the experience of eternal life is the ongoing process of knowing God more completely. And we don't have to wait until we get to heaven to, to, to gain this knowledge. We can start right now. And brethren, to tell you the truth, we must start right now. You see, if we get to know God better, we will have greater confidence in facing death and dealing with all the difficulties that accompany it. The more more I know of God, the more I know of God, the less I am afraid of leaving this world in order to be with him. We, We think of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul at Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, he writes to us by inspiration with this kind of confidence. Why? Because he is a man who knew God intimately. intimately. At Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, the Bible reads, For I am convinced that, 
the night of death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul was a person. Paul was a person who was confident in God. He was a man who truly knew God, and thus he could write these very encouraging words to to those who feared death because of their knowledge of God being so limited. Intimate knowledge of God produces confidence, and the assurance promotes a more effective prayer life. James chapter 5 verse 15, the beginning, the first part of that verse, what it does, it talks to those, of those rather, who are confident in their prayer. And then that text says, the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. A strong faith is required for strong results. The way to build our faith is to get to know God, the God of the Bible, more perfectly. The prayer in faith is the prayer that is offered with the belief that God is there. But not only that, God hears. But not only that, God is able to answer now because God was able to answer in the past. Now, as previously mentioned, This faith comes as we grow in our knowledge of the one that we are praying to. So, let us begin this effort at knowing God by answering one of the more, you might say, popular questions about him. And that popular question is this right here. It's interesting. It has, what, eight words in it, and the longest word, It's three letters, but it's a very popular question. The question is this. Is God a he, a she, or an it? This question is usually asked by individuals who are not familiar with the Bible. There have been efforts to eliminate all gender references to God in Scripture. And it's fair to say this was a reaction to the patriarchal nature of the Bible and and male-dominated imagery, imagery it contained. Some feminist groups, for instance, suggested that we should refer to God as she in order to regress the imbalance, well, rather, of 2,000 years because, because of this, some modern editions of the Bible do not refer to God as he. At times they refer to him as she or use the term mother God or father God in an effort to blend together some type of a homogeneous uh, God that includes an equal measure of both male and female imagery. This politically correct thinking, if you will, 
and posturing does not take into account that references to God in the Bible, well, they're metaphors. They're metaphors. Example, the Bible refers to Peter as a man because Peter was a man. And because of this, a metaphor is not used here. It's not required here. But when the Bible refers to, to, to God as he, it is using a metaphor. Whether you use male or female references makes no difference. They are still metaphors that only describe through imagery part of God's character. The simple truth, the simple truth is that God is neither male nor female. God is pure spirit and is thus not human, let alone male or female. Jesus himself at John 4 verse 24 said this, God is spirit. Now therein lies the problem of knowing God. If he were human, male or female, we could more easily relate to him. But because his nature is completely different from ours, we have difficulty knowing God. We have difficulty understanding God. I want to turn our attention to the Greeks for a moment. The Greeks had a, a panoply of, uh, of gods who were part human and part supernatural. Notice I didn't say part spirit. I said part supernatural. These gods had very human characteristics. They wept. They were jealous. They married. And they cheated on their spouses. The God of the Bible is not human, so, so we should not attribute to him weak and sinful human characteristics. He is not like us. Now, he may, we may be like him in many ways, but he is not like us. And because of this, God reveals himself. He reveals himself to us using terms and images that are taken from a frame of reference that we as human beings can understand. Example, it would not help us to know God better or more completely uh, if we said he was like the angels. Why is that? Because the angels are spirit beings. <laughs> angels are spirit beings as well. So, so we cannot relate to or uh, know them any more or any better than we know God since their nature is different from ours as well. Consequently, using them and only them as references would not be very helpful to us. What God does is select people and things that belong to our world in order to describe, if you will, what exists in another world, what exists in another dimension, what exists in another nature. One of the dangers of attempting to, to know God from the things that he has created is the human tendency to worship and serve the creator, the, the creature rather, rather than the creator. 
at Romans chapter 1 at verse 25, we are warned about this. The text there says, For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The Apostle Paul warns against making God out to be uh, rather making God out of things that represent or give us insight into God's nature. Oddly enough, in today's society, we seem to be doing this in reverse. We are trying to eliminate, we are trying to replace the images that the Bible uses to describe God, and we are trying to replace them with 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 symbols that suit us better, symbols that 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 we want to use that are related to our phys- to our political or humanistic agendas. In other words, we're not using the words, we're not using the images, we're not using the metaphors that the inspired writers have given us to describe God. But what we're doing is replacing them with our own symbols and metaphors to describe God in ways that fit our current thinking. The answer to this kind of tinkering, and this is tinkering with the Bible text, is to realize that God, who not only chose to reveal himself to man, but this God chose also the manner, if you will, in which he would do so. And that this God should be the final orbiter of how he is described and perceived by those he created by us. At Hebrews chapter 1, at verse 1, that text addresses this very issue in, in, in proper context. Hebrews 1 and verse 1, the Bible says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, and in many portions and in many ways. Now, note carefully something here. Note carefully what the Hebrew writer is saying about God revealing himself. He spoke, that is, God revealed to various ones, the, the patriarchs and the prophets, and he did this in many portions and in many ways. In other words, God made himself known in a variety of ways to Moses. For instance, he did so with Moses in the burning bush, with Isaiah in a vision. He inspired others with his images, to the Israelites with the use of fire, thunder, and lightning on the mountain. He revealed himself to different individuals and people in the way, manner, and portion that was suitable for the time, but not only that, it was effective for the idea that he wanted to convey to them. Example, when God revealed himself to Moses, let's say this again, he appeared as a burning bush that was not extinguished. And he did this in order to show Moses that he was dealing with the eternal one. We can read about this in Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Now, this was important for two reasons. Number one, Moses needed to understand that the one who appeared to him, 
was the same God that had made promises to his ancestors uh, hundreds of years before. Secondly, God would send Moses to face a powerful king to demand the release of his people. And Moses needed to have this confidence. He needed to be confident in knowing that the one who sent him was more powerful than the one he was sent to. Both of these requirements were fulfilled with his appearance as a fiery bush that could not be extinguished. Had God merely spoken to Moses in a dream, Moses could have doubted the dream as being true, but not only that, he would have doubted the specific instructions that God gave him as well. But a burning bush, think about this for a moment, a burning bush that did not burn out, seeing his flames, feeling his heat, and hearing a voice from it in broad daylight, this was hard to dismiss. It's hard to dismiss. And because of this, God chose different ways to reveal himself to various people in order to convey specific messages. And this is why, this is why the writer of Hebrews says that God spoke in many ways and in many portions. So we look at Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2, and God goes on speaking there. And there it says that Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2, but in these last days, God has spoken to us in his son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. The last days, these last days, refer to the time between Christ Jesus' first appearance. And when we talk about his first appearance, we are talking about his birth. We are talking about the life that he lived, the ministry that he, that he brought forth. We're talking about his death. We're talking about his burial. We're talking about his resurrection. We're talking about his ascension. And then the next period of time that we will see him will be his next appearance. And this will be at the end of the world to judge the world. In this period of time, God has chosen to reveal himself through Jesus Christ. And this is how God wants us to know him as we know God, Christ Jesus to be. Now the point is this. The point is this. We do not have a right to change the words or images that the Bible uses because the Spirit says that God has chosen to reveal himself through Jesus Christ. This means that words, images, metaphors, and commandments that that Jesus Christ communicates are the ways that God has decided to reveal himself to us who live in these last days. So then, from, from the burning bush in Moses' day to the person of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, God has revealed himself to us using many different forms. Our task, our task is not to elevate one form over another or, or change them to suit our particular social or political point of view but to bring all of these biblical forms together so that we can better know the spirit that we call God. Now this is the first important step to the process 
of knowing God. So I said that question, that popular question, is God a he, a she, or an it? So let's address the one, the, the it. Let's look at God as it. From the beginning, from the beginning, God has used a variety of inanimate objects to demonstrate facets of his character. Example, Exodus 3 at verse 2. He appears as a burning bush that was not destroyed. Why this way to reveal himself? Well, as as was explained previously, to demonstrate his eternal and powerful nature to Moses. And later on, God would eventually send Moses to do great miracles and to bring and to rather to begin by demonstrating his own power in the burning bush. The point for Moses to grasp is that if God could appear as a burning bush that could not be extinguished, then guess what else God can do? God can divide the Red Sea. God can divide the Red Sea. God can provide water from a rock. The burning bush was a, a preview, if you will, of all the things that God would eventually do through Moses as he led the children of Israel out of Egyptian slavery through the performance of incredible miracles. Psalms 28 and verse 7, David writes, the Lord is my strength. The Lord is my shield. In this and many other passages, God is seen as a shield in order to demonstrate his protective nature. Deuteronomy 32 at verse 4, the Bible says, the rock, his work is perfect. Here, the metaphor for God is that he is like a rock. He is like a boulder. His imagery conveys the idea that he is stable. He is foundational. He is unmovable. These images, however, have limitations. But within context, they describe quite graphically, if you will, certain dimensions of God so that we can relate to him not only as an, on an intellectual level but also on an emotional level. Look at it like this. I can imagine a huge boulder and in confidence say, God is my rock. I can feel his weight. I can feel his sturdiness. And because of this, relate to it emotionally. This is one of the reasons that the Bible often uses objects to describe God more fully. Now, keep this in mind, though. There is no one example, there is no one thing, there is no one metaphor that can capture all of what God is. But these give us insight into parts of his character and parts of his will. If left up, rather it is left up to us, it is left up to us to put these together in order to make a more complete image, if you will, 
of the God who wants us to know him. The question, is God a he, a she, or an it? We've addressed the it. Now let's look at God as a woman. The idea that God is represented as female in the Bible is not unheard of. But it does make some feel uncomfortable because the majority of references speak of him as male. There are, however, many references in the Bible to God as female. Example, Ezekiel 19 and verse 2. What was your mother? A lioness among lions, the Bible reads. Here God is compared to a fierce and protective lioness in giving birth to Israel. Isaiah 66 of verse 7b. Before, before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. Here God is compared to a woman at the point of giving birth. The passage goes on to say that the child, Israel, was conceived carried and delivered in a single day a kind of superhuman woman if you wish nevertheless the imagery of God here is female Matthew 23 verse 37 B the Bible reads how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling in Matthew's passage here Christ Jesus is talking to us. And what he is doing is this right here. He's speaking, he's speaking of the protective nature of a hen. And what he's doing, he is comparing that to God's protective nature toward his children. Again, the imagery here is female in nature. The use of female imagery, therefore, is used throughout the Bible to describe various aspects of God's character and nature. And but what better way, think about it, what better way to, to convey protectiveness and tenderness and compassion than through the figure of a woman and a mother? The question, is God a he, a she, or an it? Let's look at God as a man. Now remember, Remember that this does not mean that God is human or has a male nature. Because again, God is spirit. Some say that this use of male imagery was, was done because men were the ones who wrote the Bible and did so by imagining God as male. But Peter comes along and messes this up altogether. At 2 Peter 1, at verses 20 through 21, Peter, you might say, blows that away or shoots it in the foot, whatever you want to say. Because in 2 Peter chapter 1, at verse 20, this is what the Bible says. And it starts out like this. But know this first of all. But know this first of all. That no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. 
but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Second Timothy <laughs> chapter 3 verses 16 it says all scripture is God breathed. All scripture is God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Peter the inspired apostle teaches that God is the one who gave the writers the information which they recorded. The images and the metaphors belong to God. They do not belong to man. A man never decided which imagery to use, male, female, or otherwise. God chose it. Human beings did not make the decision as to what would be contained in the Bible. Peter says that those who wrote were moved by the Spirit of God. So it was the Spirit of God that gave them what they were to write. And this includes the types of images and metaphors used to describe God. The major idea, beginning in the Old Testament, describes God as Father. This term in the Hebrew, which is the language of the Old Testament, means chief, source, or nourisher. The Jews referred to God as Father and Lord, or Father and King. But it was Jesus who developed the idea of God and he made it real personal as dad or daddy. And we who are parents can relate to our children saying to us dad or daddy rather than calling us father, parent, dad or daddy. We dads and daddies loved it when our children come to us and say dad, daddy. And I like pops every now and then too. In the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to God simply as father, a parent over a hundred times. But Paul the Apostle repeats this, this beautiful and confident imagery in Romans chapter 8 at verses 15 through 17 where there he refers to God as Abba or translated Daddy which was a more intimate form. The metaphor of father describes one who is chief. Not only that, though, but one who is also provider, sustainer, leader, protector, comforter, teacher, and friend. God is not a man. God is not a man, but from the male nature, God has drawn some inheriting characteristics in order to convey yet another aspect of his complex person for us to know and to draw comfort from. He is teaching us. He is teaching us about himself using him human imagery because we understand this type of image we understand 
ourselves as males and females. And we also understand references to our surroundings. God uses, uses all of these sources in order to help us relate to one whose nature is pure spirit. We can refer to God as he, not because God is male, or perhaps, or rather prefers males, but because Jesus chose to confirm the Old Testament references to God as such and laid down ways we can address and interact with God which are proper and accurate according to God's will. So if Jesus then, if Jesus refers to God as Father a hundred times but never as Mother, then I can feel quite comfortable really in referring to God as Father myself without feeling guilty or insensitive toward the feelings of my sisters in Christ. Additionally, faithful women of God can refer to him as Father as well without feeling that they are betraying their own sexuality. Why? Because we can both follow the lead of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the way we refer to God and know that we are doing what is biblically correct and thus we're doing what is acceptable to God which in the end is all that matters. Of course, the most complete revelation of God comes not through an image not from a metaphor, but through a person. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, Paul writes, He, that is Christ Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Here the Apostle Paul explains that in Christ Jesus, all the imagery of the Bible finds this expression in a person. All the it and the he and the she images of the Old Testament come together in the one and only Jesus Christ. The protectiveness of the lioness, the tenderness of the mother, the strength of a father, and the stability of a huge rock, as well as all other metaphors, are now expressed completely in Jesus Christ. All of the imagery is summarized in a male, Adam, because a male was the first created, and the male, Jesus Christ, will be the one through whom the second creation comes. This is what Paul alludes to in Romans chapter 5 at verse 19. Romans chapter 5 at verse 19, the Bible reads, For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous the first man Adam fell and then like Adam Jesus was resurrected he will be the one who raises up those who fell because of Adam's sin. 
more importantly the full nature of God is represented in human form because humans are made in the image and likeness of God animals are not objects are not so we can come back to the original question who are we praying to we are praying to someone who is not human but can relate to human need and emotion because he took on the form or rather he took on human nature and experienced life as we know it he then returned to the spiritual dimension and position from whence he came this is who God is we see him in Jesus Christ because as humans this is the clearest view that we can have of God so what does this mean to us to begin with it means that God can relate to us it means that God can feel what we feel it means that God can understand all of our concerns all of our joys and all of our fears we're not wasting our time in prayer Nevertheless, it remains difficult for us to relate to him. He is also much more than we are, and because of this, we cannot take all of it in. Interestingly enough, though, he can even relate to this feeling on our part because appearing on earth in the body of, the, of a man, Jesus Christ, he experienced the limited nature of human life and death. Therefore, everything from birth to death that, that we raise up to God in prayer, he can relate to. He can relate to because he also was born and ultimately died. And for this reason, he understands every experience because these two points to everything in life. Secondly, it means that God does care. His intimate involvement with mankind throughout history even to the point of becoming human himself for a time demonstrates that he does care and does hear our prayers why should he alter his divine nature to experience human living if he didn't care think about that for a moment this drastic, this painful, this, this humbling act on his part teaches us that, that we have a sympathetic and eager recipient of our prayers. And finally, it means that God wants to help. The Bible shows how zealous God is for his people. The Bible shows how eager God is for sinners to come back to him. The Bible shows us how ready God is to punish those who harm his children. With God, we have hope that our prayers will be answered and not grudgingly so. When we confess our faith in God to others, let us remember let us re remember to describe him as the Bible does using the words, the images, and the metaphors that he himself has provided in his word so that we can know, so that we can describe as accurately as possible 
the one we believe, the one we serve, the one we love, and the one we offer our prayers to. Thank you for joining us tonight. And we don't have time for that question. But it will be back next week. <laughs>